New data are providing good news about a new coronavirus variant that scientists feared could evade immunity and new COVID-19 vaccines. Turns out the variant does not appear to be a greater threat after all. Details coming up on this Tuesday, September 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, extremism extremism experts say lengthy prison sentences for members of the Proud Boys have not seriously damaged the far-right group. They remain active organizing, recruiting. Arguably, their membership has grown in the aftermath of the insurrection. Former Proud Boys leader received his jail sentence today. Senators are back to work in Washington, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, despite intense scrutiny around his health and his ability to lead. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Senate's getting back to work in Washington following a month-long recess. Averting a partial government shutdown is again top of the agenda. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell spoke on the Senate floor a short time ago. This month, of course, Congress needs to address our nation's most pressing needs with timely appropriations, and we need to keep the lights on come October 1st. McConnell did not address his health during his first speech on the Senate floor since he temporarily froze during a press conference in Kentucky last Wednesday, the second such episode in the last six weeks. A Capitol Hill physician disclosed today that McConnell underwent several medical evaluations, but there was no evidence that the 81-year-old suffered a seizure, stroke, or movement disorder. The White House says it's closely monitoring communications between Russia and North Korea. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the Biden administration says Moscow may attempt to buy ammunition from Pyongyang to refill its reserves during its more than year-and-a-half-old war with Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says it's still unclear how far the cooperation between Russia and North Korea will go, but it's apparent that discussions have been actively advancing. The Russians have imbued them with an increased intensity as reflected in the fact that their defense minister, their number one guy in their defense establishment, actually got on a plane and flew to Pyongyang to try to push this forward. There have been reports that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may travel to Russia for a summit with President Vladimir Putin. Some experts have said that in return for weaponry, Pyongyang would likely request food and energy shipments and transfers of sophisticated weapons technologies. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. President Biden tested negative again today for the coronavirus, but NPR's Frank Ordonez reports he'll be wearing a mask anyways while indoors and around people. President Biden is scheduled to leave Thursday for a trip to Asia. He'll visit Vietnam and India, where he'll attend the G20 Leaders Summit. The National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says there have been no changes to his schedule after the First Lady tested positive for the virus. We have long experience now from the early days of the administration Uh, in managing uh, for situations in which uh, COVID plays a role in summits. He noted that various leaders have needed to participate virtually in events, but the White House says President Biden is not experiencing any symptoms, and he'll test at regular intervals, as White House doctors recommend, before and during his trip. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Investigators have expanded the search area for a fugitive convicted of murder. Danilo Cavalcante escaped from a Philadelphia area prison last Thursday morning. He's been spotted near residential areas. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. With the start of the new school year, the American Civil Liberties Union in Massachusetts is launching an online toolkit to help students and their parents uphold students' right to learn. Laura Rotolo is the ACLU of Massachusetts field director. She says there have been nationwide assaults on what teachers can teach and what books libraries can lend. She said it's also a problem here in Massachusetts. 45 attempts in Massachusetts to restrict access to books last year with actually 57 titles of books challenged. And the ACLU, along with other communities and other organizations, have stood up against these challenges, and we have succeeded. Ritola says the ACLU wants to make sure all students get a quality, inclusive education. The toolkit is at the ACLU of Massachusetts website. State Senate is going to review a plan that would allow UMass Lowell to give an easement to National Grid for the installation of a geothermal well field on what is now a parking lot. Under the bill, any cash proceeds from the easement would be placed in a trust fund to help UMass Lowell meet its decarbonization goals. The bill is now before the State Administrative Committee. A treasured Christmas tradition will be missing from the holiday scene this year. Today, Brian O'Donovan, the creator of A Christmas Celtic Sojourn, announced he is putting on pause the live shows that have become a mainstay of the holiday season for the past two decades. He's also pausing his St. Patrick's Day performances. O'Donovan says in a message on his website that his battle with terminal brain cancer has forced him to make tough decisions, including this one. He says he's working on a best-of film to celebrate the 20 years of music, dance, and storytelling in the Celtic traditions. We wish him our best. May not feel like it yet in New England, but fall is almost here. Local farms are getting ready to sell their share of popular seasonal produce, such as apples and pumpkins. Marissa Covo is field manager at Shelburne Farm in Stowe. She says their pumpkin harvest has not been affected by the recent wet weather. We have about two acres of pumpkins on our farm, and we're going to have our, our usual harvest with it, which is great, about like fifteen to 20,000 pounds of pumpkins per acre. So, yeah, we're expecting a lot this year, which is great. She says it's important to support local farms that may have been affected by the loss of their peach crops. Many farms across the region lost that crop due to frost in the springtime. Hazy sunshine out there right now, dimmed by some clouds into the evening. Still muggy, still mild, 82 degrees in the Boston area. Tonight should fall to about 71 degrees, partly cloudy. Then for tomorrow, sunshine yet again. Temperatures hiking back to the mid to upper 80s. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters September 15th. Tickets available now. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Senators are back to work in Washington today, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky. The Senate reconvenes with our work cut out for us and a deadline fast approaching. I hope each of our colleagues has returned ready to do their part. Congress is preparing for a busy month ahead, including the potential for a government shutdown. 
And there's intense scrutiny around McConnell, his health, and his ability to lead. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell is following all of this. Hey, Kelsey. Hi there. Okay, so McConnell's suffered two recent incidents in public where he appeared to freeze up, apparently unable to speak. Do we know anything more about what caused either event? Basically, no. His office released a letter from the attending physician of the Capitol, Brian Monahan, that listed health concerns he had ruled out, like a stroke, a seizure disorder, or Parkinson's disease. But, you know, he notably didn't say what he suspects could be the actual cause. McConnell has been under huge pressure to disclose more about his condition. Two public incidents raise real questions about his condition outside of those very carefully controlled moments. You know, Monahan also said he is not recommending any changes to McConnell's treatment treatment plan for the concussion he suffered about six months ago, back in March. Why is McConnell's presence so important at this moment in Congress? Well, a lot of the focus on spending and the spending fight has been around disagreements between Democrats and the White House in particular and House Republicans. Speaker McCarthy agreed to certain spending levels in the debt limit deal he reached with President Biden earlier this year. And House conservatives have insisted on cutting spending much lower than that deal. McCarthy went along with their demands and the White House says they won't accept those House bills. But what's really been lost in all of this is that McConnell doesn't support what McCarthy's doing either. He actually made that point at the same press conference in Kentucky where he froze most recently. He said he supported the agreement McCarthy and Biden reached before. The House then turned around and passed spending levels that were below that level. Without stating an opinion about that, that's not going to be replicated in the Senate. Yeah, so one thing to know about McConnell is that he often uses end-of-August press events back in Kentucky to kind of set the tone or, you know, set a message for Senate Republicans for when they return to Washington. His comments get picked up and repeated, essentially giving Republicans who've been away for a month early talking points about where the party is on important issues. And that's part of the way he uses his power as leader. And those were not the comments that were picked up and repeated. It was him freezing and questions about his health that was repeated. But as we look at these spending fights, important to note, he says the spending cuts the House passed are not going to be repeated in the Senate. So is this just an issue of messaging and control for McConnell, or are there bigger issues for how Republicans will govern? You know, that is the question we're going to be trying to answer this week. McConnell is known for his ability to usually get at least enough Republicans on board with his position for him to prevail. In this case, he's pretty firmly rejecting those spending cuts in the upcoming funding process. Not only that, but the Senate Appropriations Committee already passed all 12 of the regular spending bills with Republican support, and that's the first time this has happened in five years. But there is intense pressure from conservatives in the House for a Republican senator to just walk away and then join them in demanding cuts. The spending bills are high stakes. Mm -hmm. Is there more on the line than just that? Yeah, absolutely. There's also the issue of military promotions. Um, Senator Tommy Tuberville is still blocking promotions, which has forced acting officers to fill really critical roles, including slots on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, the term unprecedented gets thrown around a lot, but in this case, it is truly a situation that we haven't seen before. Democrats and even some Republicans are asking McConnell to intervene to resolve that. And there are plenty of other legislative issues ahead in the coming months, plus the potential for the House to begin impeachment proceedings for President Biden. McConnell will be a critical voice within the GOP for all of those things. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell, thank you. Thanks for having me.
Turning now to international, if not interplanetary news, India's lunar lander has completed its initial mission on the surface of the moon. The country's space agency announced that the lander has gone to sleep nearly two weeks after touching down. Joining me to discuss how the mission has gone and what it could mean for us Earthlings is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Hey there. Hi, Fauna. So, Jeff, for starters, why has the lander gone to sleep, assuming that is intentional? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, this mission is solar powered and the sun is setting on the moon. Mm. The time from sunrise to sunset on the lunar surface is 14 days. It landed at sunrise to maximize the work it could do. And now the day is done. So it's time to go to sleep. <laughs> okay. So Jeff, what did India achieve with this landing? Well, this is the closest that any nation has ever gotten to the south pole of the moon. And that's important because researchers believe there's water ice and craters on the pole, and that would be huge. H2O can be used for drinking water, of course, but the oxygen can be used uh, to breathe and the hydrogen can fuel a lunar base potentially. Now, the lander wasn't quite far enough south to find this water ice, but it did make a bunch of measurements in this area no one's ever been to before. It deployed a little rover that kind of poked around, took some pictures, and right before they shut it down, it did a bunny hop just to see if it could. Honestly, though, the biggest effect of this mission might be back here on Earth. I spoke to Victoria Sampson at the World at the Secure World Foundation, a nonprofit that monitors space diplomacy. She said this soft landing has really put India on the map. It was a big deal. I mean, if nothing else, they just became the fourth country that's been able to do it, following U.S., Russia, China. And frankly, Russia has not been able to do it for you know almost 50 years. In fact, a Russian lunar mission crashed just days before India touched down. That's right. Now, the U.S. is not on great terms with Russia or China here on Earth. Uh, can it work with India on the moon? You know, this landing raises that possibility. Um, earlier this summer, India signed on to a U.S. set of principles around space exploration called the Artemis Accords. The Accords set rules for things like how spacecraft talk to each other and sharing of scientific data. The fact that India signed on could be a signal that it's hoping to cooperate more closely with the U.S. on lunar exploration. I think the fact that they did sign the Artemis Accords means that they are open to the idea of cooperating with the United States. And from America's side, it has its own diplomatic regions for encouraging cooperation. It's trying to bolster relations with India and other nations in the Asia-Pacific region as part of an effort to counter China's influence. You know, space is one possibility where they could get their heads together. All right. And Jeff, this is starting to sound a lot like a geopolitical space race back to the moon. So tell us, is that where we're headed? I mean, it might be. Russia and China are collaborating on an international lunar research station near the South Pole, and NASA is trying to get back there through its lunar program, which is also called Artemis, just like the Accords. But I think times are different. Let's not forget, we did win the space race back in 1969 by putting people on the moon. And a recent poll from the Pew Research Organization found relatively few Americans actually support a return to the moon. Mm. Just 12% said it should be NASA's top priority. They'd rather the space agency look out for killer asteroids and monitor climate change. You know, India's space agency has a relatively small budget. Russia has problems of its own with a war in Ukraine. China's facing a financial slowdown. 
I think if we're headed for another space race, it's going to be more of a, a sort of space, I don't know, stroll, space speedwalking competition. <laughs> okay. That is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Today we have some good news about the pandemic. New data indicate that a variant that has raised alarm is unlikely to pose a big new threat. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the details. When scientists first spotted the new variant, known as BA286, it set off alarm bells, even though it's rare. That's because BA286 had mutated like crazy, on par with the original Omicron, which caused a massive surge. Raising fears, BA286 could sneak around the immunity people had from all their infections and vaccinations and cause yet another huge, deadly wave. Ben Morell has been studying the variant at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. When something heavily mutated comes out of nowhere, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's this risk that it's dramatically different, and then it changes the nature of the pandemic. But the first studies to analyze how well our immunity can neutralize the variant came out over the weekend and indicate BA286 is unlikely to be another game-changer. At least four preliminary laboratory experiments all found that antibodies people have in their blood from getting vaccinated or infected with one of the more common variants that are already circulating widely can effectively block BA286. For BA2.86, the initial antibody neutralization results suggest that history is not repeating itself here. Its degree of antibody evasion is quite similar to recently circulating variants. It seems unlikely that this will be a seismic shift for the pandemic. Because, it turns out, BA286 doesn't look like it's any better than any of the other variants at evading the immune system. In fact, it appears to be even less adept at escaping from antibodies than other variants and may also be less efficient at infecting cells. Dr. Dan Baruch has been studying the variant at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. BA2.86 actually poses either similar or less of an immune escape risk compared with current circulating variants, not more. So that is good news. That is reassuring. It does bode well for the vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to approve new vaccines soon that target a more recent Omicron subvariant than the original shots. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will then recommend who should get them. While that subvariant, called XBB15, has already been replaced by others, it looks like a close enough match to protect people. Dr. Peter Hotez at the Baylor College of Medicine hopes as many people as possible will get the new vaccines as quickly as possible. I wish the booster was already out. That's my only concern is we need it now. Because yet another wave of infections has already begun, increasing the number of people catching the virus and getting so sick that they're ending up in a hospital and dying. Rob Stein, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, why Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign for president does not seem to be making a dent in Donald Trump's lead among Republicans. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu analytics. 
First day of trading of the week brought losses across the board. The Dow gave up more than a half percent. S&P dropped about four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell just under a tenth of a percent. Boston-based Toast, a digital platform for restaurants, is named a new CEO. Aman Narang will take over January 1st. He co-founded the company and served as co-president since 2012 and chief operating officer since 2021. Outgoing CEO Chris Comparato says Narang is the ideal choice to lead Toast into the next era. Both will remain on the board of directors. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. Hazy sunshine, a few clouds into the evening hours. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies should be dry. Temperatures about 71 degrees dry in terms of no rain, but it should be sticky tonight. Humid again tomorrow. Bright sunshine, highs about 87 degrees. 82 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. More than half the gun deaths in the U.S. are suicides. And preventing those deaths is one area where opposing sides of the gun debate have found common ground. They both like the idea of safe storage, handing over your firearm to a friend or a gun shop if you're thinking of hurting yourself. But as Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports, there are significant obstacles to making it work. At Capital Sports, a gun shop in Helena, Montana, firearm sales have boomed in recent years. But owner Ed Beal says so have sales of items that keep guns locked up and safe. We'll start with safe storage. There you go. You can start with trigger locks. Very basic. Little vaults so you can get to them quick. Locks and safes can keep firearms away from kids, keep them from being stolen, and might even save lives if someone at home is feeling suicidal. Like our number one seller is... Right here. It's a tall, narrow metal safe that can hold long guns like rifles and also smaller pistols. Here, they always encourage customers to keep their guns locked up. But more recently, public health officials have asked Beal to store guns for people in crisis. But he's undecided. I'm not really sure that firearms dealers doing hold agreements is the the best idea or not. A few states, such as Maryland and Colorado, have published what are called safe storage maps online. The maps identify locations like gun shops where people can store their guns if they are in crisis. Montana is building its own map now, but state and federal gun laws make it more complicated than it seems in theory. Hammerdown Firearms is a gun shop outside Denver, and it's on the safe storage map for Colorado. But co-owner Chris Jandro says only two people have ever actually used the service. There's not a dealer that we don't know that doesn't want to stop this madness, you know, with people in depression. And especially over these last three years, people are just more depressed than they've ever been. I mean, we see it. Jandro says people do ask him about storing their guns. 
But many customers back out once they hear that they'll need to pass a background check later when they come back to get their gun. And the background check includes questions about mental health treatment. Getting treatment doesn't necessarily disqualify someone from getting the gun back, but the questions are confusing. Jandro says these are people in crisis. It does trip people up. In 2021, the Biden administration announced its support for the creation of more safe storage maps. But it also reminded gun dealers that they still had to do background checks. NPR requested an interview with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, which regulates gun shops, but did not receive a response. Jandro and other gun shop owners say it's just easier to have friends and family store firearms for someone who is suicidal. And it is easier under federal law. But in some places like New York and Massachusetts, state laws can make that option almost impossible, according to Harvard's Kathy Barber. In New York state, you might be a licensed gun owner, but you're still not supposed to hold on to somebody's guns because you're supposed to register each individual gun. The only way around it is for both people to go to a gun shop together and do the paperwork for an ownership transfer. Not only do you need a background check, but you're supposed to have the license for the particular gun. Other states require less paperwork, but only if you're a close family member. It's still a lot harder for friends to help. Overall, these legal hurdles just take too long during a psychiatric crisis. Dr. Emmy Betts is a public health researcher in Colorado. It's a great idea for transfer laws or background check laws to have that clause that allows transfers for prevention of suicide. It would make it easier for you to give your gun to your cousin, for example. That's what they did in Washington state before only immediate family members could hold onto guns. But a recent change to the law now allows extended family members and friends to hold a gun if suicide is a risk. Dr. Fred Rivara is with the Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center in Seattle. He supported the new law, but says it only helps families in his state. I think that's part of the problem is that, first of all, these laws are different in each of the 50 states. And what one state may say may be different than another state may say. And a lot of states are pretty silent on this whole issue of temporary storage of firearms. Rivara says it'll take time to address these gaps. But he says the first step to saving a life is being willing to reach out to a loved one in crisis to let them know you care and want to keep them safe. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Helena, Montana. The story comes from NPR's partnership with Montana Public Radio and KFF Health News. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. The eastern white pine tree is native to North America, and it can be found from Newfoundland to the Appalachian Mountains. Historically, it's been heavily logged. The Adirondack Park in northern New York is one of the few places you can find giant, old white pines. North Country Public Radio's Amy Fireisel takes us there to a place called the Elder Grove. The Elder Grove is about a mile's walk from a tiny hamlet called Paul Smith's. An old logging road turns into an unmarked footpath that winds through meadows, mud, and into woods. I'm with two forestry professors from Paul Smith's College, Randall Swanson and Justin Waskowitz. About halfway there, Waskowitz stops at a big tree. I'll look at it for a second. So this is a white pine. It's three, three and a half feet in diameter. It's probably 120 feet tall. 
He points out the many dead branches sticking out of the trunk. First live branches are only up maybe 30 feet. You know, it's, it's enormous, but it's probably only 120 years old. And where we're going, the white pines are three times that, about 350 years old. And Waskowitz says they'll look different. We walk over a gentle rise and the forest changes. All right, so this frame is to the, the edge of the grove. And the trees in here were, were tagged and numbered. And I've got a little kind of hand-drawn map that somebody gave me. We head towards tree number 101. Oh my goodness, it's huge. The white pine seems to go up and up forever. Randall Swanson points out that this trunk is smooth. We're going up well, at least 80 feet before we see a branch. It's so high up, the crown of the tree looks small. From the ground, it doesn't look like a huge crown, but that has to generate all the food to support all the rest of the living tissue in this tree. There are 50 of these ancient pines here. They germinated around 1665. And this stand is special because it exists. It escaped centuries of logging in the Northeast. Which is really stunning to think that they've been here longer than, than yeah. the country and think all the things. The, <laughs> like, imagine standing in the same place yeah. for 350 years. The trees have lightning strike scars on their trunks. Their weathered gray bark looks almost like armor. The upper branches are gnarled from snapping and re-sprouting. Imagine all the storms you would have to sit through, all the lightning strikes overhead, how scared you'd be sometimes, right? And, and they've done that. But in another 50 years, these pines will probably all be gone. They're aging out from height, from rot. There are already several trunks on the ground covered in moss and fungi. As they fall, the understory trees will take over. Sugar maple, beech, yellow birch. It will become a different forest. For NPR News, I'm Amy Feierisel in the Elder Grove and Paul Smiths. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, NPR's president and CEO plans to step down nine months before his term is set to expire. David Folkenflik's report is coming up. Red Sox once again take on the Tampa Bay Rays at a second game of a three-game series with the Sox taking game one yesterday. Cutter Crawford gets the start for the Sox today. Zach Elflin is on the hill for the Rays. First pitch in St. Petersburg, Florida is set for 6.40 p.m. In the forecast should be a partly cloudy night tonight, maybe not too conducive to sleeping, feeling sticky, falling to about 71 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine rising to just about 87. 82 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. With most television and film productions shut down, actors and writers are finding new ways to make an income. I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this. How Hollywood strikers are making ends meet. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Alabama, a three-judge panel has struck down a recent congressional district map passed by the Republican-led state legislature. From Troy Public Radio, Kyle Gassett says this follows a ruling by the Supreme Court back in June that said Alabama had violated the Voting Rights Act. 
The judges ruled that the Alabama legislature's newest congressional maps do not comply with the court's direction and called their recent efforts a failure. In July, the Alabama state legislature was called into special session to respond to the Supreme Court ruling, which said black voters in the state were not given a reasonable opportunity to elect a second candidate of their choice. Currently, the state only has one black majority congressional district, and the court ordered the state to create a second district, which it didn't do. The panel of judges is directing experts to draw three new potential maps with a second black majority district. Legal court battles over the maps are expected to continue into the future. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. The first Africa Climate Summit is underway in Nairobi, Kenya, where delegates are focused on building financing to pay for green initiatives. The vast majority of the nations most affected by climate change are on the African continent. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is calling on nations to step up climate action and make financing more equitable. Africa accounts for just 4% of global emissions, but it suffers some of the worst effects of climate change. Today, I renewed my call for the world to step up climate action to avoid the worst effects of climate change, keep global promises to provide essential support, and help Africa make a just and equitable transition to renewable energy. African diplomats say other countries have vowed to provide up to $100 billion a year to finance climate projects, but the promises have not been fulfilled. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new poll finds that a majority of Massachusetts voters surveyed support boosting the child and family tax credit in Massachusetts. The measure is part of a larger tax package that's been stalled in the legislature since June. A survey by Mass Inc. says 77 percent of those polled give overall support for the tax credit, with higher support among those who have children. Charlotte Bruce is with the Children's Health Watch, a coalition that's advocating for the change. She says parents have told her that the credit would allow them to afford items such as soccer uniforms for their kids. A lot of these things that are so often taken for granted, but really um, families are struggling with on a daily basis of not only how am I just going to afford the necessities for my family, but really the things that make my child and my family feel part of the community. The tax credit is now $180 per child. One plan under consideration would increase it to as much as $600 within a few years. Police in Oak Bluffs on the island of Martha's Vineyard are investigating signs with white nationalist messages posted around town. Images of the signs shared on social media show they feature the web address of the Patriot Front. The Anti-Defamation League classifies Patriot Front as a white supremacist group. The Oak Bluffs Police Department says it's looking for information about who posted the signs. A rare moth has been found in the Worcester County town of Hardwick. The orange sallow moth is listed as a species of special concern. The moth larvae feed exclusively on a plant known as the false foxglove which thrives in habitats that experience periodic fires. Chris Biolo is Mass Wildlife's senior restoration ecologist. He says they began controlled burns at the Muddy Brook Valley to restore the habitat. It was once supporting these species. That natural process of fire had been removed. We lost these species, and now that we're back creating these appropriate disturbance regimes, we're seeing these species return to the valley. Bulow says since the work began, 28 fire-influenced plants have returned, along with birds that haven't been seen in decades. Brown University is giving nearly $175 million to its host city, Providence, Rhode Island. The school plans to pay out the money over the next 20 years, starting next year. The money would be used for things such as education, safety, and climate change resiliency. 
The Providence City Council must first approve the agreement between the university and the city. 82 degrees in the Boston area. We're in for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Kick off the blanket should only fall to about 70 degrees, a muggy night. And then sunshine again for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, meaning through Friday. Temperatures Wednesday in the mid-80s. Thursday could hit the low 90s. Friday right about 90. 82 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been widely considered one of the most viable opponents to Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nominations. For the Republican presidential nomination. In many polls, he's been second to the former president, albeit a far second. His campaign has struggled since the very beginning, and it hasn't gotten any smoother in recent weeks. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign famously started kind of rough. All right, sorry about that. We, we've we got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers. That's from DeSantis's official campaign announcement during a Twitter Live event earlier this year. It was, in short, a logistical disaster, and it kind of set the tone. Besides a lackluster debate performance, there have also been reports that his campaign staff has had a lot of turnover. Republican pollster Whit Ayers has worked on a lot of campaigns, and he says some of this comes from running on the national stage for the first time. Our first presidential candidate was fond of saying that going from a statewide race to a presidential contest was like going from eighth grade basketball to the NBA finals. The DeSantis campaign did not respond to multiple requests from NPR for comment. Ayers worked with DeSantis on his 2018 gubernatorial campaign. He says these issues might also stem from the fact that his whole team is new. Ron DeSantis has run five different campaigns, three for Congress, two for governor, and he has had five completely different campaign teams for those five races. Ayer says he didn't hire back some top talent from his team in 2018 or staff from his blowout win in 2022. That creates some real trust issues if you've never been through a political war with the people you're working with today. So it's tough. Politics at any level is a team sport, but it's especially a team sport at the presidential level. In the past two months, it's been reported that DeSantis replaced his campaign manager and laid off at least 10 staffers. Republican strategist Alex Conan says no successful presidential campaign has that much turnover in such a short period of time. I think, you know, successful campaigns have a team on day one that has worked together, that has experience in national politics uh, and who has the, the trust of the candidate. Conant, who worked with Senator Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign, says a campaign that hits a reset button two or three or four times in the middle of the summer isn't doing that because things are going well. It's really hard to change the trajectory of a presidential campaign in the middle of a presidential campaign 
uh, simply because you are constantly taking so much incoming fire. And when people smell blood in the water, it just attracts more sharks. Things could turn around, though, because there is still a big chunk of the Republican Party open to an alternative to Trump. So Conan says if DeSantis wants to get back to being a serious contender, he's going to have to prove he's a better candidate than his campaign. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. Alabama's congressional map is once again going back to the drawing board after a panel of three federal judges struck down the state government's latest congressional districting plan. This was a revised map Alabama was ordered to draw after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a previous version as a likely violation of the Voting Rights Act in June. Neither version of the map had more than one congressional district with a majority black population in a state that has seven districts and where the population is over one quarter black. Evan Milligan is the lead plaintiff in the initial legal challenge to Alabama's maps. He is also the executive director of the Civic Engagement Coalition, Alabama Forward. He joins us now from Montgomery. Evan Milligan, welcome. Hi, Wanda. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So this is the second time a map that Alabama has produced has been struck down by judges. What's your reaction to this ruling? Well, we're, we're encouraged. Uh, this is, a, you know, is, is a victory in many ways and not one just shared by the plaintiffs in the case only, but you know, it extends to our coalition on the 8th of uh, August. With people wearing shirts featuring uh, the map that we actually presented and uh, folks from our coalition at Alabama Forward and beyond, so much so that they actually were almost going to have to open a second overflow room. Mm. So the support and, you know, the people who've been entering this conversation and learning about it, it's really been encouraging. I hope that um, we're able to resolve this, you know, well in advance of the October deadline. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but we'll see how things play out. And we were having a little bit of trouble early there on your line. Sounds like it's clearing up now. Um, Evan, the state of Alabama has said that it's preparing to appeal today's ruling to the Supreme Court. How might this play out from your perspective? Well, we we're, we think that, you know, there, there's obviously a chance that uh, the Supreme Court could take interest in the case again and in, 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 in sort of revisiting some of the issues that, the state of Alabama hopes that they take on. I'm I'm more doubtful of that. I think that when we read this opinion from the federal panel, and they're using words like deeply disturbed, uh, uh, when when they're using words that really express an emotional language, how confused they are by the fact that they gave an order that was clear, that was affirmed by the Supreme Court, and the state of Alabama communicates that they understood the order, but that they just had no interest in complying with it. I think that puts uh, the Supreme Court in an interesting position should you, you should they even want to actually revisit this issue. And I don't I don't know that they would want to affirm or embolden the sort of um, the st uh, state legislature's resistance to complying with a very clear federal court order. Right. I, I just want to put this into some human terms for folks today. Yep. This delay and this continued lit litigation, what does it mean for black voters in your state as election season draws closer? 2024 is just around the corner. This means that, you know, right now we're, we're going through, uh, what is this, year two under an illegal map. So the map was actually proven 
well, the, the, the court that, that issued the ruling today, they actually held that this map was unconstitutional back in February of last year. And so then, um, you know, we, we litigated up to the Supreme Court. They issued their ruling in June of this year. So we're, we're still under this map. And that means that the rights of black Alabamians here in the state and, the, and, and Alabamians as a whole, because when black Alabamians voting rights are violated, that vo that violates everyone living here. And that's a that's a concept that we really need to do a better job of embracing as a community in our state. It played out in a very interesting way. Um, yeah. during the special session leading up to the adoption of this map, there were members of the conservative majority who felt shut out by the process and felt that their their interests weren't even mm -hmm. taken into consideration due to the to the leadership of a smaller number right. of people in their own party. So when okay. we're when we're advocating for freedom, for uh, you know protection of minority voices, protection right, right. of dissenters, equity. This and is something that extends to all Alabamians. All it makes us all safer extends and are to able all to play Alabamians. a more viable role. We're going to have to leave it there. Evan Milligan, the executive director of Alabama Forward and lead plaintiff in the initial challenge to Alabama's Hello. congressional maps. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And now some news about NPR. Our chief executive, John Lansing, says he intends to retire at the end of the year. That's nine months before his five-year term ends. Through his tenure so far, he's faced multiple crises, the pandemic, a racial reckoning, and a brutal drop in advertising revenue. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is reporting on the development. Hi, David. Hey, Ari. So Lansing's term was set to wrap up a little bit over a year from now. I know you interviewed him. What did he say about why he is retiring early? Well, he's 66. Uh, he uh, has a daughter who uh, uh, is studying abroad next spring, and he and his wife wanted to travel, he said, for a, a good stretch uh, and meet up with her as she hit her 21st birthday. We have to recall Lansing had enjoyed uh, decades uh, as uh, a successful career in commercial television, ultimately overseeing the EW Scripps Company's uh, uh, cable companies and scripts to local TV stations uh, and leading the uh, parent federal agency of the U.S. agency uh, of the Voice of America for the federal government. So he's done a lot, but this is early. And it's been he's, you know, as you said, confronted a couple of crises along the way. Yeah, things are never boring at NPR. But even by that standard, it's been an eventful past few years. Tell us about his tenure. Yeah, it's been a stretch. I mean, just months into his tenure, early 2020, as we all know, there's the pandemic and that hit every employer in the country and every person in the country. So he's not unique in that regard. But he had to figure out a way not only to sustain uh, the company as the finances were completely thrown into chaos, but also how to broadcast live, how people like you, Ari, could do your job broadcasting from home. You know, he was told initially it might take six months to make that work remotely. They were able to do it in about a week. And he was also able to sustain morale, I think, by encouraging uh, uh, folks to have constant communication with staff. Uh, another thing he stressed was his North Star, the idea that uh, we would uh, uh, embrace a diversity and inclusion, not just as a moral issue, but as a business imperative. You saw that reflected in our workforce, that the leadership top ranks went from 9% people of color to 42% in his tenure. Similarly, right now, our general workforce stands at 42%. That's up from about 33% four years ago. But I got to say, NPR's radio audiences are still older and whiter than the American population at large. You're seeing some uh, benefits, uh, you know, in the digital and podcasting side, but it's a tough challenge. 
as the company emerged from the pandemic and began returning to work, we were suddenly hit by this deep economic hit, which led to layoffs of about 10% of our colleagues. Can you talk about Lansing's legacy there? Yeah, so they started worrying about it about a year ago, and those worries became not only just freezes that we experienced around Thanksgiving last year, but ultimately tough layoffs projected early this year. They laid off, as you said, about 10% of the workforce. We lost four podcasts. And, you know, there have been real questions about how well we've strategized, whether we've been seeing around corners properly. Have we innovated enough from our original space as a dominant figure in audio as so many other media entities are competing with us? And I think that while our finances are okay right now, according to, to John Lansing, we're in the black, that's still a, you know, a source of concern for folks. And as he prepares to depart, there are a lot of high-level vacancies at NPR. Oh, it's an incredible series of vacancies, uh, positions that are newly filled or uh, pe- people who are holding the job just temporarily. Right now, vacancies, uh, you know, our chief operating officer won't be replaced. We have a newly named position, chief content officer. Uh, our head of programming con- podcast is also going to step down at the end of the year. So key things, positions that have to be filled. And that, you know, raises the question of what strategy is going to be leading us in the future as John Lansing departs at the end of this year or early next. NPR's David Fulkenflick, thank you. You bet. And under NPR's protocol, no corporate official or news executive reviewed this reporting before air. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the creators of the intergalactic adventure known as the video game Starfield. That's coming up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the International Institute of New England, welcoming and supporting refugees and immigrants in the community for more than a century. IINE.org. Summer in September out there, 82 degrees now. Look for partly cloudy skies tonight, maybe not too conducive to sleeping. Should be muggy, falling to about 71 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine, rising to about 87. Hottest temperatures of the week could come Thursday as it creeps to 93 degrees. Should be in the 80s and dry at least through the end of the work week. If you're new to Boston, thank you for choosing 90.9 WBUR. We're Boston's NPR news station. You can find updates at the start of every hour, along with context and nuance and alerts on your phone. Listen every day at the WBUR app. The time is 4.49. WBUR supporters include ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. With most television and film productions shut down, actors and writers are finding new ways to make an income. I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this. How Hollywood strikers are making ends meet. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Giant machines sucking carbon dioxide out of the air to fight climate change. Sounds like science fiction, but it's poised to be reality, with billions of dollars of support from the U.S. government. And a key player in this growing industry is a U.S. oil company. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. 
Earlier this year, on a windy bare patch of red dirt near No Trees, Texas, a celebration kicked off. In a big white tent, there were sliders to eat, a stage, a robot dog, for some reason. What's, what is the robot dog doing? I never got an answer to that. This was a groundbreaking for Stratos, a billion-dollar plant to pull carbon dioxide out of the sky. Major climate groups say this technology will be essential to the fight against climate change. But this party was not thrown by climate activists, but by an oil company. Let's back up. We've spent more than a century filling the atmosphere with huge quantities of carbon dioxide, changing the climate of the entire planet. Most of that carbon came from burning fossil fuels. So the idea that we could just build machines to pull that carbon back out? It, it sounded almost too good to be true, uh, to be honest. Richard Jackson is a top executive at Occidental Petroleum, or Oxy for short, a big American oil company. Several years ago, they started seriously considering this technology called direct air capture. This is about clawing back carbon already in the air. Take a deep breath. You just inhaled a lot of nitrogen, some oxygen, and a tiny bit of carbon dioxide. These plants to suck out that carbon, they can be built anywhere. You know, we drew, drew a circle on the board and put a dot on it and said, okay, really, is that, you know, is that plant going to make a difference? The circle was the earth. The dot, a direct air capture plant, a big industrial facility, extracting that carbon from the sky so it can be used or stored instead of fueling climate change. Jackson was skeptical at first. I guess we, we got comfortable. Comfortable enough to start planning billion-dollar projects. This technology is key to Oxy's unusual plan to stop contributing to climate change while still making oil. Oxy started partnering with a company called Carbon Engineering. In 2018, NPR took a tour of its industrial facility in rainy British Columbia. These are the sounds of huge fans moving air while flowing liquids absorb carbon dioxide. So you can actually hear, kind of sounds like a waterfall. Jenny McCahill, a chemist and engineer, was leading that tour. She explained the chemical reactions, why they need high heat, and ultimately how... Right now we are capturing uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. This is doable, but it takes a ton of energy. That means even more emissions you have to capture along the way. And it means this process is expensive. So expensive that just a few years ago, it was an open question whether anybody would ever pay to do this at a huge scale. That is not a question anymore. McCahill, who led that tour back in British Columbia, she was also at that party in dusty, gusty No Trees, Texas. It was Oxy's party and a long-awaited dream come true for her. We are at the groundbreaking for the direct air capture plant uh, that we're building out here in uh, Texas. Occidental Petroleum is now buying carbon engineering and it plans to build a lot of these plants. The first one is designed to capture half a million metric tons of CO2 per year. And in one sense, that's nothing. The world will have released that much carbon by the time you're finished listening to this radio piece. In another sense, it's huge, a hundred times bigger than anyone's built before. It's really exciting to actually be able to see this all come together and the enthusiasm that's in the room. Or in the tent, rather. 
Outside, there wasn't much to see yet. A brand new road and a couple of excavators. The earth has uh, been moved and groundworks um, are being prepared. Michael Avery is the head of the Oxy arm that's building this plant. This project takes a lot of the same expertise as Oxy's oil and gas projects, and just a fraction of Oxy's substantial cash. As Avery and I were speaking, the wind picked up, which was appropriate. In a couple of years, according to plan, a lot of air will be moving through here, through huge fans, across huge air contactors, capturing lots of CO2, and then... The CO2 will travel on a short pipeline to a well in that direction, uh, which is where it will be sequestered underground. Sucking carbon from the sky is expensive. But if you can prove you've stored it underground forever, the government and some companies will pay for providing that service to the planet. Alternately, if you inject that CO2 near an old oil well, you can squeeze more oil out of the ground. Occidental Petroleum plans to do both. But CEO Vicki Holub prefers the make more oil option. You actually do produce a net zero barrel of oil. Net zero oil. She sees a huge market for it. And bigger picture, she wants to use this tech to allow the world to combat climate change and keep using oil. It's really going to take oil to be produced for decades to come. And if it's produced in the way that I'm talking about, there's no reason not to produce oil and gas forever. That sound you just heard was a lot of climate and energy experts screaming in frustration. Because yes, the world will use oil and gas for decades at least. But the question, and it's a crucial question, is how much oil will we burn? Climate advocates want to cut emissions sharply. Holub focuses on canceling them out. The more we cancel, she argues, the less we have to cut, the more oil we can use. But carbon removal takes enormous amounts of energy. And for many climate advocates, this is not why they fought for this technology. No. Carbon removal, we have to remove carbon and reduce emissions. If we use carbon removal instead of reducing emissions, we are not going to meet our climate goals. That's Erin Burns, the executive director of Carbon 180. Her nonprofit vocally supports this tech, but is skeptical of oil and gas involvement. It's one symptom of the sometimes mixed feelings in the odd coalition of industry groups, green groups, and Oxy that lobbied for all these government incentives. For so many years, the debate about this technology was whether it would happen. Now, with remarkable speed, things have shifted. Billions of dollars are being spent. Plants are being built. The big debate now is what exactly are we using them for? Camila Dominoski, NPR News. NPR's Jeff Brady contributed to this report. For more on this carbon-sucking technology and how Oxy wants to use it to make more oil, tune in to All Things Considered tomorrow and later this week. At 25, Anderson Clayton is the youngest person to chair North Carolina's Democratic Party, and she thinks rural voters should consider her pitch. Joe Biden is the first president in 50 frickin' years that said, hey, if you live in a rural area, deserve to have a future. It's a mindset shift of like, no, no matter where you live, you deserve to have the best of everything. In North Carolina, she faces some unique challenges. That story tomorrow on Morning Edition. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the Portakalos family is headed to Greece. From director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is WBUR. Clouds and sunshine taking turns this evening. Clear skies tonight with some fair clouds around. Uh, Fair weather clouds on the muggy side, about 71 degrees. Tomorrow's sunshine should shoot to about 87 degrees again. Then Thursday could hoist the mercury to almost the mid-90s with sunshine sticking around. This is 90.9 WBUR, 82 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Construction is underway on the controversial transmission lines from Canada to power millions of homes in the Northeast states and the U.S., but delivering renewable energy to the U.S. comes at a cost for Canada. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, September 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the impeachment trial of the suspended Attorney General of Texas began today. Ken Paxton faces 16 counts related to bribery and misuse of office. The ambitious new video game Starfield features 1,000 explorable environments, along with a gazillion choices and consequences. It took eight years to develop. If I have a worry about our story is I do think the ending of the game might be a little controversial. More from the creators of the Starfield adventure coming out. It's 5.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is slated to depart for a trip to Asia later this week, traveling to India and Vietnam, two key countries that share a border with China. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the trip comes as the president continues to deepen cooperation in the region to counter China's growing influence. Biden will meet with India's leader Narendra Modi in New Delhi and attend the G20 summit. That's the forum for major economies. But the group has been fractured in recent years after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and notably the top leaders from both Russia and China are not expected to attend this year. Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, told reporters that it's more important than ever that the world has a well-functioning G20. You'll see that the United States will make it clear that we remain committed to the G20 as a critical forum for all of the major economies of the world to come together for global problem solving. One key initiative the Biden administration will be pushing is a bigger, stronger World Bank to provide more lending to low-income countries. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Russia is holding elections in parts of occupied Ukraine this week. According to a report from the British government, the process is meant to establish more control over Ukrainian territory. 
Here's NPR's Brian Mann. The statement from Britain's defense ministry said voting is already underway in Zaporizhia and Mariupol in southern Ukraine, with broader elections expected to begin Friday. The report noted only candidates from political parties approved by Moscow are allowed to run. These will not be free or fair elections, the British statement said, adding that candidates from the United Russia Party will likely win up to 80 percent of the votes, quote, in an attempt to secure the Kremlin's hold and influence over the occupied regions. This effort by Russia comes as Ukrainian forces continue to make slow advances in the Zaporizhia area with reports of heavy combat losses on both sides. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. A new COVID-19 variant contributing to the summer's uptick in illnesses is not a big threat as a lot of people might have feared. NPR's Rob Stein reports the latest batch of studies shows COVID vaccines are still working. The variant is called BA286, and it was setting off alarm bells because it had mutated as much as the original Omicron variant, which caused a massive surge. That sparked fears that the new variant would be able to sneak around people's immunity and render the new vaccines coming out this fall useless. But a spate of new laboratory studies indicate the BA286 variant isn't any better at evading immunity than the variants that are already circulating widely, and that the new vaccine should still protect people. Rob Stein, NPR News. Stocks closed mostly lower on Wall Street as investors returned from the long Labor Day weekend. All three of the major U.S. indices were down slightly. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is receiving more than $9 million to improve energy reliability. The U.S. Department of Energy says the state plans to use the money to support clean energy decarbonization efforts and to create jobs in the sector. The funds will also be used to strengthen the state's energy grid against extreme weather and natural disasters. The goal is to reduce costs and the number of outages communities experience. Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities is looking to help residents better manage their winter heating bills. The department has ordered Eversource and National Grid to place January and February into two different billing periods. One period would run from February to July, the other from August to January. The state's third utility company, Unitil, already uses this schedule. The move is designed to smooth out seasonal spikes in service supply rates throughout the year. The former First Lady of Massachusetts has a new gig. Lauren Baker will become CEO of the Wonder Fund. The nonprofit provides children involved with the Department of Children and Families with items such as clothing and sports equipment. Baker first got involved with the organization as a volunteer. Mount Holyoke College has been named one of the most beautiful campuses in the U.S. AAA says the school in South Hadley earned the distinction thanks to the Botanic Garden and historic red brick buildings. Carla Youngblood says she fell in love with the campus when she was choosing a college to attend. The 1999 graduate is now the school's vice president of facilities management. The rich red brick of historic buildings When you put those in proportion to the sky and the trees, there's just a real symmetry, a real balance that happens that just draws you in and really connects you to the physical place that it is. She says a ground staff of 12 people maintains more than 200 acres of the Mount Holyoke campus. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight. Tonight should fall just to about 70 degrees. And then sunshine again through Friday. Temperatures tomorrow in the mid-80s. Thursday could hit the low 90s. Friday right about 90 degrees. An earlier start time for the Red Sox and Rays tonight. 6.40 first pitch. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston. Zach Eflin for the Rays. 82 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Everybody loves a good story, and today we're going to tell you about a really big one. To do that, I want to introduce you to someone I just met. His name is Bill. Why, hello there! I'm Bill Starsap of Starsap Tours. I met Bill on Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons. Bill's a tour guide at this kitschy museum full of artifacts from Earth. He's a little older and balding, and when I met him, he was wearing this multicolored vest over a rumpled shirt. He offered to show me around. This is New Homestead's main concourse. This And Bill is just one character that I met in a galaxy full of characters and stories that take place on more than a thousand planets. They're all part of an ambitious new game called Starfield from Bethesda Game Studios. Humanity has always hunted for knowledge in the unknown. This space epic includes 3 million words of dialogue and 1,000 explorable environments and countless choices and consequences. And this story, well, it might just be one of the biggest stories ever told. We're all here because we're committed to the biggest question of all. What's out there? Despite its galactic setting and grand ambitions, it was created right here on Earth. Um, does anyone want coffee? We have pretty much everything. As developers were preparing to release Starfield, we visited Bethesda's headquarters outside of Washington, D.C. I'm here for the B-roll, non-B-roll. <laughs> the lobby is sleek with white floors and blonde wood paneling. One wall is covered with a floor-to-ceiling replica of a large stone relief from Skyrim, part of the Elder Scrolls franchise and one of the best-selling games of all time. There's also an imposing glass case that stretches from the ground floor three stories high, filled with awards that Bethesda has won over the years. It's not just about being, you know, rewarded. It's like, it's history. That's Bethesda director Todd Howard. Inside that trophy case, Howard showed us a row of boxes for games that Bethesda's released, charting the studio's history, starting with Gridiron, a game that came out back in 1986. Then he pointed to a game box just down the line from that one that came out before I was born. This one right here, Wayne Gretzky Hockey 3, my girlfriend gave me this game for Christmas. And I saw the address on the box and realized it was on my way back to school. And I just knocked on the door and said, I want to work here one day. And now here we are in 2023. Those kind of stories don't happen. 30 years later. It's like pretty much the only place I've ever worked. Not far from the trophy case, a pair of video screens displayed a digital countdown clock. The seconds ticking by. Howard paused and glanced over at the screens. One day, nine hours. After eight, eight. plus years in development, mm -hmm. that's an incredible moment. How are you feeling? Uh, you know, it's a mix of exhaustion, excitement, a little bit of nerves. But I would say the, the excitement is kind of the main one. It's like, you're just, I wish it said one minute. 
Howard, design director Emil Pagliarulo, and art director East Von Paley make up a brain trust that's been writing this story for nearly a decade. So the first thing we wanted to know was, when telling a story this big, where do you start? For Howard, it was about nailing the tone of the game. And we get into themes of religion. Know that even if our beliefs differ, the church will always be here should you need it. And science, and what is creation, and where does the universe come from? Are we special? How do you feel about your own destiny? How do you feel about the choices you've made in your life? We're a gang. You understand that, right? We steal, we mug, we kill if we have to. So are you really interested? Starfield's creators drew inspiration from movies and TV shows like Star Trek, Interstellar, Battlestar Galactica, and The Martian, but also from real-world sources like NASA and SpaceX. This is design director Emil Pagliarulo. You know, when you talk about making a science fiction game or a space game, it turns out that means different things to different people. Is it Star Wars, Star Trek, um, Serenity? I think one of the things we try to do is find a a unique voice for the science fiction epic. Art director Istvan Paley. Science fiction as a genre is very fleshed out. And I think a lot of sort of narrowing focus when you're tackling something so big in scope, so vast, is what the limitations are, right? Because science fiction, you know, without any rules, without any parameters, just becomes fantasy. We wanted this to be hard science fiction and grounded and relatable. Starfield's thousands of explorable planets are each distinct with unique characteristics and intricate, detailed stories. Some are lush environments where a player can spend hours exploring and cataloging the fauna and flora. Some are bustling cityscapes full of people to meet and missions to explore. I'm a black Others are lifeless and desolate. As we played through the opening sequence of the game at Bethesda headquarters, our spaceship, the Frontier, took off. That's when Istvan Paley drew our gaze into space. The expanse of stars is vast and humbling. And that star field back there, it's not just a backdrop, it's not just random dots. Every dot there is an actual star that we've mapped out. It's actually accurate to the, to the sector of the galaxy that we're in. It was a real design challenge because it's all real data. You know, when you land on a planet, it's real sunlight, it's real moonlight. For so many of us, space evokes a sense of wonder and awe and makes us confront big questions about who we are as people, where we fit in, and what else is out there. There's like a romantic quality to that sense of adventure and exploration and kind of going to the unknown uh, that, you know, nowadays maybe is lost a little bit because, you know, we have regular trips up there. One of the reasons we made a game as vast as, as it was, with so many planets and places to go, some places which may feel desolate, empty, is to, you know, if we can help the player feel small sometimes, like actually alone out there. Starfield has, you know, it affected me so personally, I would hope that someone who plays it, it, it affects them personally, because I sort of, you know, over the last couple of years have had this weird, you know, theological existential crisis. And, and you know, like, you know, flip-flopping back and forth with faith and spirituality and, and like those themes playing into the game and looking at outer space and really wondering, you know, is, is there something out there? 
The game takes these heady questions about meaning and faith seriously, asking players to make choices about how to try and answer them. There are even two fictional religions, the Enlightened and the Sanctum Universum. Sanctum Universum's followers believe that space travel brings humanity closer to God. Some folks never feel it. That connection to the universe you only get from grab jumping. Honestly, I wish I could show them what they're missing. Here's Emil Pagliarulo again. One of our designers who used to work here, Shane Liesgang, is now, he's studying to be a Jesuit priest. And we hired him to, to do writing for us for the Sanctum Universum. So the, the actual theological writing in the game is actually written by someone who is, is studying theology and training to be a priest. Starfield is a feat of storytelling and scale, but expectations for the game are almost as vast as the Starfield universe itself. And the stakes for Bethesda are high. While recent Bethesda releases from the Elder Scrolls franchise in Fallout 4 were wildly successful, Fallout 76, a multiplayer game that came out back in 2018, struggled out of the gate with technical issues and was widely panned. Starfield itself was delayed for about 10 months as the team worked to create and perfect its first entirely new universe in 25 years. Everything was new. We had to concept everything from trays to trash cans to chairs to like, you just sort of take some things for granted. And that just took us a long time. And then the technology engines switch out during the pandemic. Um, things went very, very slowly. Uh, for a while. Microsoft, which makes the Xbox, acquired Bethesda and its parent company in 2021 for $7.5 billion. And this is Bethesda's first release since that acquisition. Here's what Howard had to say when I asked him about the pressure to deliver. They really have believed and trusted in us. And I think that's what anybody wants in life is to have somebody else say, I, you know, I really trust you and believe in you. How can we help? And so I do feel pressure to have it deliver for them. The earliest group of players have their hands on the game now, and so far, critical response has been positive. And with a universe so vast and full of potential, it's not hard to understand why fans have been so eagerly waiting for this game. After all, who hasn't imagined, even if just for a moment, what it might be like to put on a spacesuit and travel beyond our own imaginations? Howard certainly has, fueled by what he describes as a lifelong fascination with space. Have you ever had a hand in creating a story bigger than this one? Oh, not even close, no. Do you have any worries at any point that Stories like these can become too big to be believable. I wouldn't say I worry about it. If I have a worry about our story is I do think the ending of the game might be a little controversial. We, we ask a lot of questions. We don't provide all the answers because I think we want a lot of those answers to be in you. Starfield is available now in early access on Xbox Series S, Xbox Series X, and Windows. The game will launch for all players tomorrow.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 10 minutes, federal judges have struck down Alabama's latest congressional map, saying it fails to comply with the Voting Rights Act. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall, tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. The first trading day of the week brought some losses across the board. The Dow gave up more than a half percent, S&P dropped about four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell just under one-tenth of a percent. Business news starts at 6.30 on WBUR. A local brewer is releasing a new beer to support resiliency efforts for the Charles River. Portico Brewing and the Charles River Watershed Association are releasing the Dam Free Ale together. The organization say they're hoping to raise awareness about the dozens of obsolete dams along the Charles. Those dams can impair water quality and decrease biodiversity. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 82 degrees still now and still muggy. It should be about 71 degrees overnight tonight. So on the sticky and warm side, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow the sunshine returns for another day and temperatures should hike back up to the mid to upper 80s. Thursday, sunny and downright hot, pushing 93 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today in the Texas Senate, the impeachment trial of suspended state Attorney General Ken Paxton got underway. Attorney General Paxton, how do you plead? Those allegations are offensive and false. The Attorney General pleads not guilty. He is accused of bribery, conspiracy, obstruction of justice, abuse of office, and many more charges in connection with his relationship to a real estate developer. Paxton allegedly tried to help the developer avoid an FBI investigation. This was discovered after members of Paxton's staff acted as whistleblowers against him. This morning, Paxton denied all the charges. KERA's Julian Aguilar has been following all this from the Texas State Capitol in Austin. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. How are y'all? All right. So opening arguments took place today. What have we heard so far from Paxton and his defense team? So Paxton and, and most of the folks involved are under a gag order, so he didn't say much. Um, and there was, you know, some thinking that he might be called as a witness during this trial, but that now that's off the table and he will not be compelled to testify. Uh, so uh, the basic defense is that the, the state constitution says that you can't impeach someone for something they did before they were elected, or in this case, re-elected to his third term. And that's what's going to be the, the crux of the legal argument now that the state senate is trying to overrule the will of the voters. 
30 million people live in the state of Texas. Texans chose at the voting booth who they wanted to be their attorney general, despite the same baseless allegations that are being made here. Okay, so that's the defense. What about the evidence against him? So yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Um, you know, the Paxton's team said that there was no evidence at all and that the House Impeachment Board of Managers, which brought these charges in May, didn't have a lot of proof. So what happened was a couple weeks ago, they uploaded nearly 4,000 pages of documents of exhibits that detail um, these alleged allegations. You know, lots of documents that the Texas House compiled when they were recommending these 20 counts of impeachment. Um, so pretty much they said, look, you want proof? Well, here's the proof. Paxton was considered one of the most powerful Republican attorneys general in the country. He filed dozens of lawsuits against the Obama and Biden administrations, openly aligned himself with former President Trump, the MAGA movement. Is this trial about his politics? His defense team is going to argue that that it is. Um, you know, his supporters um, say, you know, he's the most conservative attorney general, as you said, and he's standing up for President Trump, sort of falling in line with former President Trump's policies, uh, you know, suing the former Obama administration, now the Biden administration on, um, you know, pro-choice issues and on immigration. Uh, but to his supporters, they see this as just a, a very, very um, clear way to remove uh, a Trump supporter and somebody that's conservative. I spoke with a Paxton supporter named Peter Bowen. He's from Houston. I uh, found him outside the Capitol this morning, and he says, you know, Paxton is being unfairly targeted because of his support for uh, former President Donald Trump. And that's why he's being attacked. I think it's the Bush forces in the state that don't want Trump. He mentioned the, the Bushes there. The establishment Republican Party in Texas includes former President George W. Bush. Um, and yet state Republicans are helping to lead this impeachment. Explain that. Right. You know, it's going to be a, a tough argument when you have these very conservative senators that are actually voting to continue with this impeachment trial. So we'll see how it plays out over the next two or three weeks. All right. Uh, that is Julian Aguilar from the Texas State House in Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Construction is underway on transmission lines from the Canadian province of Quebec to power millions of homes in New York and New England. Northeastern states plan to use Canadian hydroelectricity to meet their own renewable energy goals. These deals have been years in the making, but for the provincial power utility Hydro-Quebec, there's a bigger challenge to keep up with rising demand at home. Emma Jacobs reports from Montreal. The air shimmers along the length of the Boacnoa Dam as warm air rises from a line of 36 massive hydro generators. It's exactly like a toaster or barbecues. Claudel Muller, who's describing this mirage effect, gives regular public tours of Boacnoa. The dam has an Art Deco design. The first section was completed back in 1932. So we're going to head to the roof. There's one more staircase to go uh, because the elevator doesn't go on the roof. From the top of the dam, we can see the skyline of Montreal about 45 minutes away. Earlier this summer, Muller says it was completely obscured by smoke from the record-shattering wildfires burning in Canada this summer. And like on the roof, I was like, <sighs> I was like, okay, I, I took my dose of smog for the day. <laughs> Those fires have been amplified by climate change, and Hydro-Québec is pitching itself as part of the solution. Serge Abergel heads Hydro-Québec's U.S. exports. 
He argues that they can play a key role in transitioning Canada and the northeastern U.S. away from fossil fuels, starting with the two lines under construction to New York and New England. These contracts from the first year, 2026 onwards, will displace the equivalent of 1.5 million cars yearly because they are going to flow hydroelectricity into markets that are heavily dependent on burning natural gas, and even at times, oil. There are others in Quebec who would rather see that energy stay north of the border. The province has had to turn away energy-intensive manufacturers interested in moving here, upsetting business groups. They've also upset some environmental groups who think Quebec should be doing more to meet its own climate goals. We're a bit like uh, the cobbler, the, the barefoot cobbler, I would say. <laughs> Jean-Pierre Finet works for a coalition of Quebec environmental organizations. We are not decarbonating and electrifying as much as we could, partly because of these contracts. Even with all its renewable power, Hydro-Quebec is now scrambling for ways to generate more because of the ways energy demand is shifting for uses like electric cars. It's even discussed building expensive new dams. Unpopular with indigenous communities, new dams also transform ecosystems. And new reservoirs, which let you control the flow of electricity, also produce more emissions in the first couple of years as flooded plant life decays. Back on the roof of Beauharnois, you can see this dam doesn't have a big reservoir. Oh, and you're lucky you can see the, uh, a boat. It's right on the St. Lawrence Seaway, connecting the Great Lakes onto the Atlantic Ocean. But reservoirs are an important part of the equation when it comes to thinking about transmitting power between Quebec and the northeastern U.S., says Pierre-Olivier Pinault. In order to introduce lots of renewable uh, intermittent wind and solar, we need storage. Pinot is an energy markets researcher at the University of Montreal's business school. He says the U.S. is mostly adding wind and solar, which don't generate power all the time, while Quebec has a network of reservoirs at other dams, which are essentially like giant batteries. In the amounts of terawatt hour, hundreds of terawatt hours of storage, if power can eventually move both directions, reservoirs in Canada could store renewable power imported from the U.S., releasing it when needed back to New York or New England, or even, when the timing is right, to power customers here in Quebec. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Beauharnois, Quebec. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up in about 10 minutes, Ukraine's army has spent months fighting through some of Russia's most deadly minefields and trenches, but its progress has been limited. Ukraine is moving forward. They are gaining ground, but, you know, it's slow. Sometimes they're picking up just a few hundred meters a day in house-to-house, field-to-field fighting. I'll have the latest on Ukraine's counteroffensive coming up. Listen to WBOR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBOR app now and tap to listen live. Game two of three tonight for the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays. Cutter Crawford gets the nod for Boston. Zach Elfin for Eflin for the Tampa Bay uh, and first pitch at Tropicana Field is at 640.
WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS, and Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Protesters and some Asian governments object to the release of radioactive wastewater from the tsunami-ravaged Fukushima nuclear plant. So why is Japan dumping it in the ocean? Because everybody's doing it. China's doing it, South Korea's doing it, the US, France, the UK. And it's much, much worse than what's happening in Japan. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is still set to travel to India on Thursday for the G20 summit after testing negative for COVID-19. The test comes after the First Lady, Jill Biden, tested positive over the weekend after experiencing what her spokesperson described as mild symptoms. This is the second time the First Lady has had COVID in about a year. The president is back at the White House while his wife remains at their beach home in Delaware. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, meanwhile, told reporters today about what the administration plans to focus on during the G20 summit meeting. As we head into New Delhi, our focus is going to be on delivering for developing countries, making progress on key priorities for the American people from climate to technology, and showing our commitment to the G20 as a forum that can actually, as I said before, deliver. The White House says Biden will be tested for the coronavirus regularly this week before he leaves for the G20 summit. In Northern California, survivors of clergy sex abuse are challenging the Roman Catholic uh, Diocese of Oakland's Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. NPR's Jason DeRose has more on the story. The Oakland Diocese filed for bankruptcy protection earlier this year. At the time, the church said the move was necessary due to more than 300 abuse claims filed under a special look-back window. In response to the Me Too movement, the California legislature opened that window to allow sex abuse claims outside the regular statute of limitations. The Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, or SNAP, says the Oakland Diocese holds real estate valued well in excess of $3 billion. That includes a shopping center, ranches, rental homes, and vacant lots. SNAP is encouraging the diocese to sell those holdings in order to fund settlements with abuse survivors. Jason DeRose, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. With the start of the new school year, the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts is putting out a toolkit to help students and their parents uphold students' right to learn. Laura Rotolo is with the ACLU of Massachusetts. She says there have been assaults across the country on what teachers can teach and what books libraries can lend out. She says it's also a problem here in Massachusetts. 45 attempts in Massachusetts to restrict access to books last year with actually 57 titles of books challenged. And the ACLU, along with other communities and other organizations, have stood up against these challenges, and we have succeeded. Rotolo says the ACLU wants students to get a quality, inclusive education. The toolkit is available at the ACLU of Massachusetts website. Removal of the River Street Dam in Acton is underway. In 2018, the State Department of Conservation and Recreation determined the dam was structurally unsafe. 
Temporary structures have been installed to divert the water and allow the dam to be removed safely. Demolition began last week. Once the dam is entirely removed, the original Fort Pond Brook will be restored and the town will create a park around it. A treasured Christmas tradition will be missing from the holiday scene this year. Today, Brian O'Donovan, the creator of A Christmas Celtic Sojourn, announced that he's putting on pause the live shows that have become a mainstay of the holiday season for the past two decades. He's pausing his St. Patrick's Day performances, too. O'Donovan says in a message on his website that his battle with terminal brain cancer has forced him to make tough decisions, including this one. He says he's working on a best-of film to celebrate the 20 years of music, dance, and storytelling in the Celtic traditions. We wish him all our best. May not feel like it yet in New England, but fall is almost here. Local farms are getting ready to sell their share of popular seasonal produce, such as apples and pumpkins. Marissa Covo is field manager at Shelburne Farm in Stowe. She says their pumpkin harvest has not been affected by the recent wet weather. We have about two acres of pumpkins on our farm, and we're going to have our, our usual harvest with it, which is great, about like fifteen to 20,000 pounds of pumpkins per acre. So, yeah, we're expecting a lot this year, which is great. Kovo says it's important to support local farms that may have been affected by the loss of their peach crops. Many farms across the region lost that crop due to the frost in the springtime. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theatre, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, opening September 7th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheatre.org. We're in for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Kick off the blankets should only fall to about 71 degrees. Then tomorrow's sunshine again could last through Friday. Temperatures tomorrow in the mid-80s, Thursday the low 90s, Friday right about 90 degrees. It is 82 degrees still in the Boston area at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. As a long summer turns to fall, we'll have an update from Ukraine and the progress of its counteroffensive against Russian forces. That's in a few minutes. But first, Alabama's congressional map will be redrawn again. A panel of federal judges has, for the second time, struck down a map from Republican state lawmakers. At issue is the political power of black voters. Stephen Basaha is a reporter for the Gulf States newsroom in Birmingham, and he joins us now. Hi there. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, Stephen, there has just been a lot of back and forth over this map. What led us to this moment? Yeah, well, we got to go back to last year, 2022. These same federal judges, they ruled that Alabama's congressional map likely violated the Voting Rights Act. And that's because it didn't have two districts where black voters had a chance to elect the candidate of their choice, which is what you really should have if you're looking at the population here in Alabama. They just had one. The Supreme Court eventually backed up the federal judges on this. So Alabama gets ordered to create this map with two majority black districts, or at least something close to it. And Alabama comes back with a map 
that still just has one majority black district. Alabama's attorneys in a hearing last month, they admitted that the state did not follow the court's order, but said to make a map based on race would be affirmative action and illegal. Okay, so what did the court, this panel of federal judges, make of those arguments? Well, the court, they firmly rejected these arguments. I mean, it had some strong language in there by court standards saying that they were deeply troubled by Alabama's behavior, that Alabama did not even nurture the ambition to follow their orders. And it basically said, look, if you're not going to listen to us, well, we're just going to have to draw this map for you. Hmm. We heard from Evan Milligan, the lead plaintiff in the case elsewhere in today's show, and he told me that he was encouraged. What else have you been hearing in terms of reaction from folks there in Alabama? Well, the celebration hasn't really stopped since the Supreme Court decision back in June. You got black Alabamians and Democrats in the state. They saw that as a victory, and they see this as a continuation of that victory. Now, the office of the Alabama Attorney General says this is not over. They are disappointed disappointed in the decision, and they're saying they'll try and bring it back to the Supreme Court. Right, and we should just remind folks that Republicans have already lost there at the Supreme Court. So what is the thinking in bringing this back to the high court? Well, you got to remember that ruling back in June, it was a surprise. You got a Supreme Court that's firmly leaning right, and they ruled against a Republican state legislature. Again, it was by a slim margin. You had uh, Roberts and uh, you had Chief Justice John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh siding with the liberals. Now, we understand that the Alabama politicians and officials, they're hoping to flip Brett Kavanaugh on mm. this. They did some things to kind of appeal to, to what he wrote in his ruling about not just the vote, uh, Voting Rights Act, but wanting to keep communities of interest together. So they tried to do that without making this majority black district. And the state's hoping that's going to flip him to their side. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left here. Assuming that the Supreme Court might stay out of this one, what are the next steps? How will voters there in Alabama know who will be on their ballot next year? Well, the court said, do not use the current map. They've tapped a special master to create a map instead, and the timeline on this in tight is tight. The special master has until the end of the month to submit three different options. Already, The court's already anticipating pushback. They have an October date set aside for a hearing. So expect the lines to be literally drawn in official sometimes in October. But of course, the Supreme Court can throw their own mm-hmm. monkey wrench into this if they decide to get involved again. That is Stephen Basaha from the Gulf States Newsroom. Stephen, thanks for reporting. Thanks for having me. The top U.S. diplomat may be headed to Kyiv. Ukrainian media are reporting that Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way there as Ukraine's counteroffensive continues to grind forward. Western military analysts say although it has taken months, Ukraine's army has fought past some of Russia's deadliest minefields and trenches. NPR's Brian Mann is in Kyiv. Hi there. Hi, Ari. First, what can you tell us about Secretary Blinken's visit? Well, I can only say what Ukrainian media are reporting right now, that he is coming. The U.S. State Department isn't commenting. So if Blinken indeed arrives tomorrow, Ari, he's going to be here at a pretty sensitive moment. It's been a long, difficult summer. Most analysts acknowledge Ukraine just hasn't seen the kind of progress they hoped for. And yet, as we mentioned, military analysts say Ukraine has broken through some of Russia's strongest defenses. What happened? 
Yeah, so what the goal here really is, is to drive forward to the coast of the Sea of Azov. Uh, if Ukraine can do that, it would sever the territory that Russia's occupied, a crescent of land that includes much of eastern Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, Moscow desperately needs to keep this territory as an uninterrupted supply route for its army. And so, yes, Ukraine is moving forward. They are gaining ground, but, you know, it's slow. Sometimes they're picking up just a few hundred meters a day in house-to-house field-to-field fighting. Why has this been so difficult for the Ukrainian military to advance? By all accounts, Russia's military has done almost everything wrong in this war. You know, they've bungled supply lines. They've sent poorly trained, poorly equipped soldiers into battle. We even saw that brief mutiny back in June by forces with the Wagner mercenary group. But when it comes to these defensive lines, Russia got smart. They spent months preparing for this fight. David Petraeus, the retired U.S. Army general and former CIA chief, is actually here in Kiev right now. And he spoke today about what Ukraine is up against. These miles deep minefields are tank ditches, concertina wire, trench lines full of soldiers, drones overhead when you're trying to pick your way through the sappers through these minefields that are bringing accurate Russian fire on top. So how do you react to that? And I think that the Ukrainian reaction has been truly admirable. And that horror of that is what Ukraine's been pushing through, RA. They won't disclose their losses, but clearly uh, this has been a costly summer. Is it possible to assess how morale is holding up in the Ukrainian army? Ukraine's keeping a really tight lid on what's happening on the front lines. The soldiers we've been able to talk to say they do remain confident Ukraine's going to win this fight. But Ukrainian officials appear concerned. President Volodymyr Zelensky just made a trip to visit some of the frontline combat brigades in the south and east, and he recorded a video while traveling on a train back from that tour. It is very, very useful to hear from those who are going into battle directly, Zelensky said, hearing what they say is lacking, what has to be changed. Everything the soldiers told me is going to get talked about by the high command, he promised. And also, you know, Zelensky just sacked Ukraine's defense minister. That's the first major shakeup we've seen uh, since Russia's invasion began. And so, you know, Zelensky is saying the defense ministry needs fresh ideas. And what about Russian troops? Any idea what they're experiencing? By all accounts, they're in rough shape. Britain's defense ministry released an analysis on Sunday pointing out Russia's trying to recruit men from neighboring countries, places like Armenia and Kazakhstan. So both sides clearly suffering big losses this summer. And what's coming next, Ari, is autumn rains. They're going to hit in the next few weeks. It's going to turn this battlefield to mud. That'll slow things down even more. NPR's Brian Mann in Kyiv. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Mexican American singer songwriter Danny Lux released his much anticipated debut LP last month. It's called Deluxe, and NPR's alt Latino podcast host Ana Maria Sayer says the album shows how much the 19 year old has grown as a performer during his short time in the spotlight. 
So something really exciting happened a couple weeks ago. Amazing, cariño, sad sireño, heartthrob Danny Lux released his third full-length album called Deluxe. I've been waiting for this one for quite some time and I'm very excited to share it. El sol de la mañana me pregunta qué pasó. So this is one of the tracks off the album called Zafiro. It's featuring Pablo Hurtado. And I just love this track because it shows the incredible versatility of Danny on this album. I mean, obviously, he is someone that came onto the scene as a regional singer. He's super young, super fresh. He has three albums out, but don't be fooled. He's only been making music for a couple of years. This album feels like a true growth to me for him. I mean, he does his classic Sad Sireño sound, but he comes out with songs like Zafiro, which move a lot more slowly, a lot more subtly, and then he builds with the strings there, and I just love the energy that he plays with. This is Como Te Lo Explico, and I think it really sonically represents what, to me, Danny is in the Latin music space right now. He is a part of this young generation of Mexican-American kids who are actually really taking the genre to a lot of global heights. Obviously, you have huge artists like Peso Pluma and Nathaniel Cano who are carrying the Corridos Tumbados genre out of Mexico, but then you have all these guys like Danny Lux, Yarita y Su Esencia, Eslaban Armado that were born and raised in the United States, and so you hear them obviously doing very traditional sounds, but in this song, for example, that bridge to me, it strikes me almost as like something like a traditional American country bill, the way that he plays with the guitar and the bass there. sprinkled all over this album, that that mixed identity, the 200%, as we've heard it called sometimes, the Mexican and the American. And so I think it's really exciting to hear the ways that not only he represents that on this album, but the, the ways that people are responding to and embracing that. It's an exciting moment, I think, in the music and to be a Mexican-American, honestly. That was NPR's alt-Latino podcast host, Ana Maria Sayer. Danny Lux's debut LP is out now. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the outlook for the new COVID-19 variant that researchers thought might cause big problems. Looks like now there is some good news. In the forecast, clouds and sunshine through the evening hours overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. 
on the muggy side, about 71 degrees. For tomorrow, the sunshine should bring temperatures to about 87 degrees again. Thursday could hoist the mercury to almost the mid-90s, with sunshine sticking around. And Friday getting boring, sunny again, but hot, could reach 93 degrees. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. With most television and film productions shut down, actors and writers are finding new ways to make an income. I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this. How Hollywood strikers are making ends meet. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Just one song. That's all a man from Wuhan, China, performs on the piano. He learned it as an act of catharsis during the pandemic, and he's been playing it in public in China, in places where open expressions of loss and grief can be interpreted as sensitive political statements. NPR's John Ruwich caught up with him on the banks of the Yangtze River. Majestic gray-green hills fall steeply into the emerald water of China's longest river here in the city of Wushan. Rain clouds threaten overhead as a piano tuner works in the back of a white van parked on the levee. The owner of the piano, Pang Hai Tao, has driven thousands of miles to be here. But his journey started in early 2020, when the authorities sealed off his hometown of Wuhan, over 300 miles away, at the start of the pandemic. During the lockdown, his father died of pneumonia. Peng, now 33 years old, happened to be out of town, and he was unable to return. I felt like a deserter. I was not there in his time of need. A few months later, his baby son died at childbirth, and Peng fell into depression. 2020 was like a catastrophe for me. I don't know how I lived through it. My father departed. My son left us. One day, though, he happened across Japanese composer Ryuichi Sakamoto's melancholy Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It's the title track from the 1983 movie of the same name, starring David Bowie and set in a Japanese army prisoner of war camp in World War II. When I heard it, my pain, all my emotions just came flooding out, and I felt consoled. It was the first time I felt that music could be so powerful, and I guess it planted a seed. Peng never studied music, but he learned the tune on his own, note by note. It took him eight months. In the summer of 2022, I dreamt of my father. I really missed him. He'd been gone over two years. And I wanted to do something for him because nobody talked about him anymore. He decided to perform the song in public, on the street. I suddenly realized that 
有这样伤痛的人。I realized that I wasn't the only person in pain in Wuhan like this during the pandemic. There were lots, so I wanted to invite people to come by one by one and play. 因为在这一层面上，我后面才理解。I later came to understand that sorrow can connect people. We always say you should have positive energy, not negative energy. But sorrow is an important emotion. We need to let it out. We need to express it, and we can't hide. He was also expressing anger and frustration, something he knew others felt after more than two years of harsh COVID controls and lockdowns. When Omicron hit Wuhan in 2022, he wheeled his piano in front of a makeshift wall of corrugated metal that was used to seal off a neighborhood. Security agents soon showed up to shoo him away. He posted that video online, and a few months later, when a fire in a lockdown apartment building in western China killed several people and sparked outrage and protests across the country, that video of him playing the tune somehow resurfaced and went viral. I received a lot of messages, people telling me, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." You gave me consolation, and through this, I realized the power of the piano. That power seems to be magnified in China, where the government does not tolerate criticism, and expressions of sorrow can be interpreted as political. Some have been critical of Peng, saying he's doing it for attention. For many others, his performances have struck a chord. His music, a language without words. Back in Wuhan, Peng and five other men lift the freshly tuned piano out of the van and onto the bow of a small flat cargo boat. Wuhan is a jumping-off point for cruises of the Three Gorges Reservoir, a massive body of water created by the world's biggest hydropower dam. Some 1.3 million people were uprooted to accommodate the controversial project. Hundreds of towns and villages were abandoned, then submerged. Peng is here because the flooding started exactly 20 years ago. I want to use piano to neutralize those places of pain in our hearts. I'm trying to resist forgetting through the piano. I'm using piano to squarely face the past. I'm using piano to reflect. A few weeks earlier, Peng marked the 15th anniversary of a powerful earthquake that killed more than 70,000 people in Sichuan Province. He played at the site of a destroyed building near the epicenter. Rain now falls in Wuhan, and Peng puts a thin sheet of plastic over the exposed piano. It's unclear if he'll play in the rain, but then we're underway. Before long, out in the middle of the river, Peng pulls the tarp off the piano, makes a futile attempt to wipe it down, and plays. His spiky hair, faded jeans, and black T-shirt getting drenched. 
Commemorating the past, mourning publicly, things like that can be fraught in China, where the ruling Communist Party tries to monopolize the right to recount history. If we think this is sensitive and that sensitive, then we would end up saying nothing. We would be people with no memory. Peng is not deterred, but he is careful. He leaves interpretation of what he's doing up to the listener. If I can influence more people to stand up bravely, that'd be great. It's possible. It's not my goal. I'm not trying to make anyone do anything. I'm just doing something that I think has meaning to keep myself from forgetting. The rain eases, but Peng's piano has been soaked through. Its keys begin to fail as he plays. The song ends, and it's quiet on this foggy stretch of the Yangtze River, as if nothing more needs to be said. John Ruich, NPR News, Wushan, China. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Still on the muggy side now, still mild, about 80 degrees in the Boston area. Tonight should fall by about 10 degrees to 71, partly cloudy overnight. Tomorrow, the sunshine returns for another day. Temperatures reach the mid to upper 80s again. Thursday, sunny and downright hot, pushing 93 degrees. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's good news about the new coronavirus variant that scientists had feared could evade the new COVID-19 vaccine. When something heavily mutated comes out of nowhere, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's this risk that it's dramatically different and then it changes the nature of the pandemic. Studies show the new variant is not likely to cause major problems. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, India's lunar mission has gone into sleep mode following two weeks of exploration on the moon, including a historic landing near the lunar south pole. 
India's space milestones just ahead. Senators are back to work in Washington, among them Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, despite intense scrutiny around his health and his ability to lead. And gun owners in psychiatric crisis can lower their risk of suicide by temporarily storing the weapons elsewhere, but safe storage is easier in theory than in practice. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The former leader of Proud Boys Group has been sentenced to 22 years in prison in connection with a plot by the right-wing extremist group to attack the U.S. Capitol. 39-year-old Enrique Tarrio was convicted of seditious conspiracy on charges he and others sought to block the lawful transfer of power after Donald Trump lost the election. Three of Tarrio's former lieutenants in the group were sentenced last week, receiving prison terms ranging from 15 to 18 years. Prosecutors had been seeking a sentence of more than 30 years behind bars for the Proud Boys leader. The Senate is returning from its summer recess today with lawmakers up against the clock to pass a government spending bill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports if Congress fails to reach an agreement by September 30th, federal agencies could begin shutting down. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says both sides need to work together without engaging in extremist or all-or-nothing tactics. Democrats and Republicans all must get on the same page and avoiding a pointless shutdown a shutdown that will hurt just about every single American. The White House and congressional Democrats are pushing for a continuing resolution, which would buy lawmakers more time to come up with legislation that would fund the government through the next fiscal year. But that plan is likely to face opposition from a group of Republican hardliners in the House who are pushing for deep cuts in government spending, among other demands. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has pleaded not guilty to charges accusing him of participating in an illegal scheme to try and overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. Meadows, like many of the other defendants in the case, including Trump entering similar pleas and waiving rights to arraignment hearings. The impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is underway in Austin. Houston Public Media's Andrew Snyder reports House impeachment managers and defense attorneys outline their cases and opening arguments. Paxton's fellow Republican State Representative Andrew Murr argued Paxton had repeatedly abused his office to assist an Austin real estate investor. The allegations in the articles reveal that the state's top lawyer engaged in conduct designed to advance the economic interests and legal positions of a friend and donor to the detriment of innocent Texans. Attorney Tony Busby, who is defending Paxton, said the charges against Paxton were false and aimed at depriving Texans of their choice at the ballot box. We hear every vote should count. Yet to get here, Texas House took away the votes of over 4 million Texans who voted for Ken Paxton. The trial is expected to last roughly three weeks. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. Stocks closed mostly lower on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 195 points. The Nasdaq fell 10 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A new poll finds that a majority of Massachusetts voters polled support boosting the child and family tax credit in Massachusetts. The measure is part of a larger tax package that's been stalled in the legislature since June. A survey by Mass Inc. says 77% of those polled gave overall support for a tax credit, with higher support among those who have children. 
Charlotte Bruce is with Children's Health Watch that's advocating for the change. She says parents have told her that the credit would allow them to afford items such as soccer uniforms for the kids. A lot of these things that are so often taken for granted, but really um, families are struggling with on a daily basis of not only how am I just going to afford the necessities for my family, but really the things that make my child and my family feel part of the community. The tax credit is now $180 per child. One plan under consideration would increase it to as much as $600 within a few years. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is urging Congress to study the effect of artificial intelligence on child sexual abuse. She joined a bipartisan coalition of 54 attorneys general to request the effort. In their letter to Congress, they noted that AI is already being used to create child sexual abuse material that includes digitally altered images of actual children. Some moths are special. A rare orange swallow moth has been found in the town of Hardwick in Worcester County. The orange swallows listed as species of special concern. Its larvae feed on a plant known as the false foxglove, which thrives in areas that have periodic fires. For decades, officials have suppressed fires in the interest of public safety. But Chris Bulow of Mass Wildlife says once the state allowed the controlled burns again, the moths came back. It was once supporting these species, that natural process of fire had been removed, we lost these species, and now that we're back creating these appropriate disturbance regimes, we're seeing these species return to the valley. Bulow says since, 28 pla- since then, 28 plants have also returned to the area, along with birds, including the eastern whippoorwill, which hadn't been seen in 30 years. Brown University is giving nearly $175 million to his host city, Providence, Rhode Island. The school plans to pay out the money over the next 20 years starting next year. That will nearly double the voluntary payments the school makes to the city in lieu of taxes. The money would be used for things such as education, safety, and climate change resiliency. The Providence City Council must first approve the agreement between the university and the city. An earlier start time for the Red Sox and Rays tonight, 640 is first pitch. Cutter Crawford gets the nod for Boston. Zach Eflin for the Rays. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, about 71 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine again. Temperatures reaching the mid to upper 80s once again. 80 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Senators are back to work in Washington today, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky. The Senate reconvenes with our work cut out for us and a deadline fast approaching. I hope each of our colleagues has returned ready to do their part. Congress is preparing for a busy month ahead, including the potential for a government shutdown. And there's intense scrutiny around McConnell, his health, and his ability to lead. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell is following all of this. Hey, Kelsey. Hi there. Okay, so McConnell's suffered two recent incidents in public where he appeared to freeze up, apparently unable to speak. Do we know anything more about what caused either event? 
basically no. His office released a letter from the attending physician of the Capitol, Brian Monahan, that listed health concerns he had ruled out, like a stroke, a seizure disorder, or Parkinson's disease. But, you know, he notably didn't say what he suspects could be the actual cause. McConnell has been under huge pressure to disclose more about his condition. Two public incidents raise real questions about his condition outside of those very carefully controlled moments. You know, Monahan also said he is not recommending any changes to McConnell's treatment plan for the concussion he suffered about six months ago, back in March. Why is McConnell's presence so important at this moment in Congress? Well, a lot of the focus on spending and the spending fight has been around disagreements between Democrats and the White House in particular and House Republicans. Speaker McCarthy agreed to certain spending levels in the debt limit deal he reached with President Biden earlier this year. And House conservatives have insisted on cutting spending much lower than that deal. McCarthy went along with their demands and the White House says they won't accept those House bills. But what's really been lost in all of this is that McConnell doesn't support what McCarthy's doing either. He actually made that point at the same press conference in Kentucky where he froze most recently. He said he supported the agreement McCarthy and Biden reached before. The House then turned around and passed spending levels that were below that level. Without stating an opinion about that, that's not going to be replicated in the Senate. Yeah, so one thing to know about McConnell is that he often uses end-of-August press events back in Kentucky to kind of set the tone or, you know, set a message for Senate Republicans for when they return to Washington. His comments get picked up and repeated, essentially giving Republicans who've been away for a month early talking points about where the party is on important issues. And that's part of the way he uses his power as leader. And those were not the comments that were picked up and repeated. It was him freezing and questions about his health that was repeated. But as we look at these spending fights, important to note, he says the spending cuts the House passed are not going to be repeated in the Senate. So is this just an issue of messaging and control for McConnell, or are there bigger issues for how Republicans will govern? You know, that is the question we're going to be trying to answer this week. McConnell is known for his ability to usually get at least enough Republicans on board with his position for him to prevail. In this case, he's pretty firmly rejecting those spending cuts in the upcoming funding process. Not only that, but the Senate Appropriations Committee already passed all 12 of the regular spending bills with Republican support, and that's the first time this has happened in five years. But there is intense pressure from conservatives in the House for a Republican senator to just walk away and then join them in demanding cuts. The spending bills are high stakes. Mm -hmm. Is there more on the line than just that? Yeah, absolutely. There's also the issue of military promotions. Um, Senator Tommy Tuberville is still blocking promotions, which has forced acting officers to fill really critical roles, including slots on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, the term unprecedented gets thrown around a lot, but in this case, it is truly a situation that we haven't seen before. Democrats and even some Republicans are asking McConnell to intervene to resolve that. And there are plenty of other legislative issues ahead in the coming months, plus the potential for the House to begin impeachment proceedings for President Biden. McConnell will be a critical voice within the GOP for all of those things. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell, thank you. Thanks for having me. Turning now to international, if not interplanetary news, India's lunar lander has completed its initial mission on the surface of the moon. The country's space agency announced that the lander has gone to sleep nearly two weeks after touching down. Joining me to discuss how the mission has gone and what it could mean for us Earthlings is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Hey there. Hi, Fonda. So, Jeff, for starters, why has the lander gone to sleep, assuming that is intentional? 
Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, this mission is solar powered and the sun is setting on the moon. Mm. The time from sunrise to sunset on the lunar surface is 14 days. It landed at sunrise to maximize the work it could do. And now the day is done. So it's time to go to sleep. <laughs> okay. So Jeff, what did India achieve with this landing? Well, this is the closest that any nation has ever gotten to the south pole of the moon. And that's important because researchers believe there's water ice and craters on the pole, and that would be huge. H2O can be used for drinking water, of course, but the oxygen can be used uh, to breathe and the hydrogen can fuel a lunar base potentially. Now, the lander wasn't quite far enough south to find this water ice, but it did make a bunch of measurements in this area no one's ever been to before. It deployed a little rover that kind of poked around, took some pictures, and right before they shut it down, it did a bunny hop just to see if it could. Honestly, though, the biggest effect of this mission might be back here on Earth. I spoke to Victoria Sampson at the World at the Secure World Foundation, a nonprofit that monitors space diplomacy. She said this soft landing has really put India on the map. It was a big deal. I mean, if nothing else, they just became the fourth country that's been able to do it, following U.S., Russia, China. And frankly, Russia has not been able to do it for you know almost 50 years. In fact, a Russian lunar mission crashed just days before India touched down. That's right. Now, the U.S. is not on great terms with Russia or China here on Earth. Uh, can it work with India on the moon? You know, this landing raises that possibility. Um, earlier this summer, India signed on to a U.S. set of principles around space exploration called the Artemis Accords. The Accords set rules for things like how spacecraft talk to each other and sharing of scientific data. The fact that India signed on could be a signal that it's hoping to cooperate more closely with the U.S. on lunar exploration. I think the fact that they did sign the Artemis Accords means that they are open to the idea of cooperating with the United States. And from America's side, it has its own diplomatic regions for encouraging cooperation. It's trying to bolster relations with India and other nations in the Asia-Pacific region as part of an effort to counter China's influence. You know, space is one possibility where they could get their heads together. All right. And Jeff, this is starting to sound a lot like a geopolitical space race back to the moon. So tell us, is that where we're headed? I mean, it might be. Russia and China are collaborating on an international lunar research station near the South Pole, and NASA is trying to get back there through its lunar program, which is also called Artemis, just like the Accords. But I think times are different. Let's not forget, we did win the space race back in 1969 by putting people on the moon. And a recent poll from the Pew Research Organization found relatively few Americans actually support a return to the moon. Mm. Just 12% said it should be NASA's top priority. They'd rather the space agency look out for killer asteroids and monitor climate change. You know, India's space agency has a relatively small budget. Russia has problems of its own with the war in Ukraine. China's facing a financial slowdown. I think if we're headed for another space race, it's going to be more of a, a sort of space, I don't know, stroll, space speedwalking competition. <laughs> okay. That is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Today we have some good news about the pandemic. New data indicate that a variant that has raised alarm is unlikely to pose a big new threat. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the details. 
When scientists first spotted the new variant, known as BA286, it set off alarm bells even though it's rare. That's because BA286 had mutated like crazy, on par with the original Omicron, which caused a massive surge. Raising fears, BA286 could sneak around the immunity people had from all their infections and vaccinations and cause yet another huge deadly wave. Ben Morell has been studying the variant at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. When something heavily mutated comes out of nowhere, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's this risk that it's dramatically different, and then it changes the nature of the pandemic. But the first studies to analyze how well our immunity can neutralize the variant came out over the weekend and indicate BA286 is unlikely to be another game changer. At least four preliminary laboratory experiments all found that antibodies people have in their blood from getting vaccinated or infected with one of the more common variants that are already circulating widely can effectively block BA286. For BA2.86, the initial antibody neutralization results suggest that history is not repeating itself here. Its degree of antibody evasion is quite similar to recently circulating variants. It seems unlikely that this will be a seismic shift for the pandemic. Because, it turns out, BA286 doesn't look like it's any better than any of the other variants at evading the immune system. In fact, it appears to be even less adept at escaping from antibodies than other variants and may also be less efficient at infecting cells. Dr. Dan Baruch has been studying the variant at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. BA2.86 actually poses either similar or less of an immune escape risk compared with current circulating variants. Not more. So that is good news. That is reassuring. It does bode well for the vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to approve new vaccines soon that target a more recent Omicron subvariant than the original shots, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will then recommend who should get them. While that subvariant, called XBB15, has already been replaced by others, it looks like a close enough match to protect people. Dr. Peter Hotez at the Baylor College of Medicine hopes as many people as possible will get the new vaccines as quickly as possible. I wish the booster was already out. That's my only concern is we need it now. Because yet another wave of infections has already begun, increasing the number of people catching the virus and getting so sick that they're ending up in a hospital and dying. Rob Stein, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hundreds of years ago, the European green crab first arrived in the region. Today, they're everywhere, and that's putting pressure on other seafood industries. One way to control the crab population, eat them. Green crab on the menu tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC's Board Ready Boot Camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. The first trading day of the week brought losses across the board. The Dow gave up more than a half percent. S&P dropped about four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq fell just under a tenth of a percent. Coming to City Space Monday, Nia Grace, owner of Boston Hotspot, Grace by Nia. Learn about her Seaport Supper Club and enjoy a taste from the menu after the show. Get tickets at wbur.org events. The forecast is coming up.
I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Martha's Vineyard International Film Fest, September 5th through 10th at Martha's Vineyard Film Center, mvfilmfest.com, funded in part by the Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Game two of three tonight for the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays. Cutter Crawford gets the nod for Boston. Zach Eflin for Tampa Bay. First pitch is at 640. Partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures around 71 degrees. Sunshine's back for tomorrow with highs in the upper 80s. It's 620. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th, semesteroff.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fair, Drop-off lunch service for celebrating Spanish Heritage Month in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. More than half the gun deaths in the U.S. are suicides. And preventing those deaths is one area where opposing sides of the gun debate have found common ground. They both like the idea of safe storage, handing over your firearm to a friend or a gun shop if you're thinking of hurting yourself. But as Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports, there are significant obstacles to making it work. At Capital Sports, a gun shop in Helena, Montana, firearm sales have boomed in recent years. But owner Ed Beal says so have sales of items that keep guns locked up and safe. We'll start with safe storage. There you go. You can start with trigger locks. Very basic. Little vaults so you can get to them quick. Locks and safes can keep firearms away from kids, keep them from being stolen, and might even save lives if someone at home is feeling suicidal. Like our number one seller is... Right here. It's a tall, narrow metal safe that can hold long guns like rifles and also smaller pistols. Here, they always encourage customers to keep their guns locked up. But more recently, public health officials have asked Beal to store guns for people in crisis. But he's undecided. I'm not really sure that firearms dealers doing hold agreements is the, the best idea or not. A few states, such as Maryland and Colorado, have published what are called safe storage maps online. The maps identify locations like gun shops where people can store their guns if they are in crisis. Montana is building its own map now, but state and federal gun laws make it more complicated than it seems in theory. Hammerdown Firearms is a gun shop outside Denver, and it's on the safe storage map for Colorado. But co-owner Chris Jandro says only two people have ever actually used the service. There's not a dealer that we don't know that doesn't want to stop this madness, you know, with people in depression. And especially over these last three years, people are just more depressed than they've ever been. I mean, we see it. Jandro says people do ask him about storing their guns. But many customers back out once they hear that they'll need to pass a background check later when they come back to get their gun. And the background check includes questions about mental health treatment. Getting treatment doesn't necessarily disqualify someone from getting the gun back, but the questions are confusing. Jandro says these are people in crisis. It does trip people up. 
In 2021, the Biden administration announced its support for the creation of more safe storage maps. But it also reminded gun dealers that they still had to do background checks. NPR requested an interview with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, which regulates gun shops, but did not receive a response. Jandro and other gun shop owners say it's just easier to have friends and family store firearms for someone who is suicidal. And it is easier under federal law. But in some places like New York and Massachusetts, state laws can make that option almost impossible, according to Harvard's Kathy Barber. In New York state, you might be a licensed gun owner, but you're still not supposed to hold on to somebody's guns because you're supposed to register each individual gun. The only way around it is for both people to go to a gun shop together and do the paperwork for an ownership transfer. Not only do you need a background check, but you're supposed to have a license for the particular gun. Other states require less paperwork, but only if you're a close family member. It's still a lot harder for friends to help. Overall, these legal hurdles just take too long during a psychiatric crisis. Dr. Emmy Betts is a public health researcher in Colorado. It's a great idea for transfer laws or background check laws to have that clause that allows transfers for prevention of suicide. So it would make it easier for you to give your gun to your cousin, for example. That's what they did in Washington state before only immediate family members could hold onto guns. But a recent change to the law now allows extended family members and friends to hold a gun if suicide is a risk. Dr. Fred Rivara is with the Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center in Seattle. He supported the new law, but says it only helps families in his state. I think that's part of the problem is that, first of all, these laws are different in each of the 50 states. And what one state may say may be different than another state may say. And a lot of states are pretty silent on this whole issue of temporary storage of firearms. Rivara says it'll take time to address these gaps. But he says the first step to saving a life is being willing to reach out to a loved one in crisis, to let them know you care and want to keep them safe. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Helena, Montana. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Montana Public Radio and KFF Health News. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. The eastern white pine tree is native to North America, and it can be found from Newfoundland to the Appalachian Mountains. Historically, it's been heavily logged. The Adirondack Park in northern New York is one of the few places you can find giant, old white pines. North Country Public Radio's Amy Fireisel takes us there to a place called the Elder Grove. The Elder Grove is about a mile's walk from a tiny hamlet called Paul Smith's. An old logging road turns into an unmarked footpath that winds through meadows, mud, and into woods. I'm with two forestry professors from Paul Smith's College, Randall Swanson and Justin Waskowitz. About halfway there, Waskowitz stops at a big tree. I'll look at it for a second. So this is a white pine. It's three, three and a half feet in diameter. It's probably 120 feet tall. He points out the many dead branches sticking out of the trunk. First live branches are only up maybe 30 feet. You know, it's, it's enormous, but it's probably only 120 years old. And where we're going, the white pines are three times that, about 350 years old. And Waskowitz says they'll look different. 
We walk over a gentle rise and the forest changes. All right, so this frame is to the, the edge of the grove. And the trees in here were, were tagged and numbered. And I've got a little kind of hand-drawn map that somebody gave me. We head towards tree number 101. Oh my goodness, it's huge. The white pine seems to go up and up forever. Randall Swanson points out that this trunk is smooth. We're going up well, at least 80 feet before we see a branch. It's so high up, the crown of the tree looks small. From the ground, that doesn't look like a huge crown, but that has to generate all the food to support all the rest of the living tissue in this tree. There are 50 of these ancient pines here. They germinated around 1665. And this stand is special because it exists. It escaped centuries of logging in the Northeast. Which is really stunning to think that they've been here longer than, than yeah. the country and think all the things. The, <laughs> like, imagine standing in the same place yeah. for 350 years. The trees have lightning strike scars on their trunks. Their weathered gray bark looks almost like armor. The upper branches are gnarled from snapping and re-sprouting. Imagine all the storms you would have to sit through, all the lightning strikes overhead, how scared you'd be sometimes, right? And, and they've done that. But in another 50 years, these pines will probably all be gone. They're aging out from height, from rot. There are already several trunks on the ground covered in moss and fungi. As they fall, the understory trees will take over. Sugar maple, beech, yellow birch. It will become a different forest. For NPR News, I'm Amy Feierisel in the Elder Grove and Paul Smiths. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Somewhat steamy, falling to about 71 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine rising to about 87. The hottest day of the week could come Thursday, hitting 93 degrees. Then Friday should be in the upper 80s with more sunshine ahead. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England storytellers this fall. Tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org.